Please open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. You were probably not expecting me to have our Christmas text this morning from the Old Testament, much less from 2 Samuel chapter 7. We have been singing about Christ and his birth and his coming. And even as we have sung about Christ, and even in our reading earlier of Luke chapter 1, one of the things that has come out in, in both song and in scripture is the idea that Christ is the Son. We are told he is the Son of Mary, the Virgin Mary. We are told he is the Son of Joseph, as it was supposed, Luke writes in Luke 3 that he is the son of Joseph as it was supposed because Joseph is not his biological father. And from the human point of view, either, from those who are watching, either they may have probably believed that Joseph had had relations with Mary before they were married, and so now they are moving along, moving forward with the, with the marriage to kind of cover up the fact that she is pregnant, or the fact that she has been unfaithful to him. But he is the son of Mary, the son of Joseph. We also read that he is the son of God. We also read that he is the son of David. Not just read, we sing about it. He is the son of God, the son of David. Jesus is the son of all of these people. And if you weren't familiar with the Bible at all, he's the son of Mary, the son of Joseph, the son of God, the son of David, you would think that this was the script for some daytime television show. Who is his real father? Who is he really the son of? But to get some help to understand why he is described as the son of David, we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament. 2 Samuel is one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament. From the vantage point of 2 Samuel 7, we are given a view of what is to come. Themes that have been hinted at earlier in the scriptures now come to the surface. And from 2 Samuel chapter 7, these themes that come to the surface here and are emphasized here are going to be picked up and they become the, the points of hope for the prophets later on. They ultimately shape the identity of who Jesus is. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is massively important. And it's helpful for us to get some context of what is going on in this chapter. Just two chapters earlier, in 2 Samuel, David is anointed king. The chapter before this, the Ark of the Covenant, which had been left outside of Jerusalem, outside of the tabernacle, it is now being brought to Jerusalem and Initially, there are some problems with that. They, they are able to overcome those issues. And as it is being brought into Jerusalem, it is being brought into Jerusalem with a massive parade, with great joy. David himself is very much making a fool of himself 
as he is dancing with vigorous joy down the down the street in front of this parade, leading the parade of the Ark of the Covenant. We know he must be making a fool of himself because his wife, Michael, who sees him, despises him, can't believe the king would lower himself and do this. We are told that part of the judgment of God upon her, she is, she is not realizing the significance of this moment. God's judgment on her is that he tells her at the very end of 2 Samuel 6, that she will not have children to the day of her death. David is overjoyed. And then time passes. And and Samuel, as he is writing and organizing his material in this book, he is organizing it by theme. So he goes, the anointing of King David, then the entrance of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and now he is going to talk about the importance of King David's line. But this isn't sequential. It's not chronological. Most likely there are sections of chapter 8 and 10 that come prior to this. Because one of the things we find in chapter 7 is that David has been given peace from all of his enemies. But in chapter 8 and in chapter 10, we find David going to war. He's organizing his material by theme rather than by some kind of timeline. What we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is important for us as we try to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. So as we, before we begin with this text, would you join me in asking God for his help on our study of his word this morning. Father, this is your word. We need your spirit. We need you, O God, to open our eyes not merely so that we may understand words and sentences, but that we may, we may see how all of this terminates and ends and points to your son, his work, which his redemptive work he has finished long ago. But the rest of his kingly work he has yet to do and fulfill. Father, Give us eyes to see that we may worship afresh our Savior. It is in his name we pray, amen. David, we find, has a, chapter 7 starts with a good desire on the part of David. A really good desire. It's good, but it's faulty. Read with me verses 1 to 3. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, look now, I'm living, I dwell in a house of cedar. The ark of God, the ark of God dwells inside a tent of curtains, that is, inside the tabernacle, a tent. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Go, do all that is in your heart. David here has a good desire. He wants to build a house for the Lord. God has blessed him. He has given him peace. He has built for himself a, we're told, a house of cedar. You need to understand that in, the, in his time, this is, this is code for 
his house was amazing. It would have been featured on whatever home improvement show, you know, whatever tours being done. That this is what it was. He would have had Chip and Joanna Gaines. Is that the couple that they come? You know, they 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 redesign. They do his house. His house was amazing, spectacular. I dwell in a house of sea of cedar. My house is rich. It is lavish. It is luxurious. And he looks out and he sees. Where the ark of God is. It is now in Jerusalem. It's now in the tabernacle. And you remember what the tabernacle is. Tabernacle is a glorified tent. A nice tent. But it's a tent. And the tabernacle has been around for quite some time, hasn't it? The people of Israel, they come out of Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai. There they're told exactly what they need to build They're going to build this construction. It's a tabernacle. It's going to travel with them. Literally a a tent that is going to act as a temple, a place for the Lord to be worshipped, a centerpiece. That's where the Lord will dwell, will make his presence known. So to meet with the Lord is to go to the tabernacle. Some of you who own your own home know what it is to have wear and tear on your home. And I'm guessing none of you live in a tent. Imagine, not decades, but centuries have passed. The tabernacle has gone with Israel. It has gone with them through the wilderness. It has entered with them into the land of Canaan. It was there in Canaan as the land is being conquered. It is there in Canaan as Israel is being conquered by its surrounding nations. It is there as Saul finally comes to the forefront. And it is here now in David's time. All the wear and tear on your home. Imagine how much wear and tear is now on this tent It's certain that they would have replaced those things that need to be replaced, but how how ratty would that place have been? How worn? And he's looking out from his wonderful palace, and he's looking at where the tent of the Lord is, and he's, it's such a small structure. Part of what's happening here is, is, is that in the ancient world, one of the ways for kings to make a name for themselves was to build a temple to their gods. It was a way for them to honor their gods and to show that the God who brought me here, he is great. And my greatness is, is solidified in that I am worshiping him. And so great kings and leaders would build massive and elaborate temples to their gods. One level, David, David is looking around at the nations and he's, he's seeing all the temples that are around him. How great they are, how lavish, how beautiful, all the gold, the marble, all that has gone into their construction. And he knows who the one true God is. He knows. And he wants to honor his God. So he wants to build a temple for his God. In the same way that all the other nations are building temples for theirs. In the ancient world, the gods 
grew as they grew in power and strength to the degree that they were worshipped and honored by their people. David wants to honor the Lord. David is looking at the tabernacle in the same way that you and I so often look at the worship of God. He's using the same line of reasoning that the world around him used to evaluate it. They judged the God to be great or the, the worship of that people to be great by the size of the building, by how much gold was used. Do we not use the same evaluation points to judge the successes of a church, the successes of worship? How elaborate the structure how much technology is used? How was the lighting, the music? We, we like organize all of these things. The same line of reasoning that is applied to concerts and structures and businesses and events in the world, we use that same line of reasoning and apply it to worship. These obviously all seem like good things. It seems like a good desire. In fact, Nathan the prophet, he hears this desire. Nathan wants to build a permanent temple for the Lord. And what does he tell him? Go, do whatever is in your heart. Follow your heart. It might be the only time in Scripture when a man is told, follow your heart. And you'll find that the very next phrase that the Lord comes in, he says, no, 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 no. Don't follow your heart. Bad idea. He expresses his desire. Nathan, without consulting God, this is, this is, this is good. This is objectively a good desire. He wants to build a massive place to honor God. What could go wrong here? Can't be anything wrong this. Who wouldn't want a better house for the worship of their God? So he goes. Go. So he says, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. And it's the Lord that gives both pushback and promises here. We are not, there, there is so much in this text. We do not have the time this morning to, to lift it all out. Well, we do. But I know you like your afternoons. The Lord pushes back. Look, look at verse 4. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Notice how he addresses him. He's your servant, my servant David. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone for the tribes of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? The Lord wants to remind, he's pushing back on David, and he, he needs David to remember some things, to know some things. And the first thing he pushes him is that it is, the first thing that David needs to remember is that he is not to go ahead of God. He is not to go ahead of God. Even with his good desire. I want to do this amazing thing for God. But God hasn't commanded it. Don't move forward. It is God who directs our ways. He is he who directs our steps. He is, this, he is the master. We are the servant. 
Go tell my servant David. David, you are the king. You make decisions. Let me remind you, as the king, you are still my servant. Don't go ahead of me. Even when our desires are good, perhaps especially when our desires are good, we need to remember to submit them to God. That's the first thing David needs to remember. The second thing David needs to remember is that God doesn't need a great house to be great. God has reminded David that in all of the years, decades, and centuries that have happened between Exodus and now David's reign, he has not once asked for this. God himself is great. He doesn't need to worry about what other people think. His glory isn't contingent on a temple that David himself will build. God doesn't doesn't need a temple that is great to be great. It doesn't add anything to him. God doesn't need David, and he doesn't need you and I to do him any favors. He is great in and of himself. The earth is his footstool. Heavens are his throne. What are you going to build for him? What can you give him that he doesn't already have? He wants David to put things into perspective. I'm the one who has done all these things. Not you, David. I don't need this. David needs that reminder. He is looking at the tabernacle with, with eyes, with the eyes of the world, with the reasoning of the world. Well, you and I often do. Thirdly, David needs to remember that not only can he not increase God's greatness, but it is God who has made him great. Look with me at verse 8. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep. I took you, and I made you to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone. And you might say, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. It is God who has led David to this point. David is on the throne, not because of his own prowess in battle, not because of his own charisma as a politician, not because he looked the part or became from the right family. David is on the throne because of God, because of God's greatness, because of God's power, because of God's mercy and grace. God doesn't need David to make him great. David needs to remember who has made him great, who has brought him to the point. He was a shepherd. It is hard for us to conceive of a lower position in society than that of a shepherd. He was a shepherd. And you notice, he was following after the sheep. He goes from following sheep to leading a kingdom. And who brought that change about? God did. So God is essentially saying, look, David, you don't do me favors. I do you favors. I am the one who does great things for you. You do not build great things for me. 
David has received the throne as a gift of God. But God is not finished. That's the pushback. Now he turns to promises. And he does so in the the second half of verse 9. And I realize in the New King James, it translates it almost as if it says, and, and have made you a great name. But if you're using a different translation, you'll notice it doesn't say have made, but it, it'll say something along the lines of, and I will make of you a great name. I will make your name great, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Here he begins a string of promises. God is declaring not only what he has done, but what he will and here the very first promise is that he will make David's name great stop for just a moment does that sound familiar at all let me ask it this way who else in scripture has God promised to make their name great Abraham Back in Genesis chapter 12, God told him, I will make your name great. And now here, David, I will make your name great. The the connection is unmistakable. It's almost as if all of those promises that were given initially to Abraham, while they're going to come to the people of Israel, they're going to flow especially through David and his line. Offspring, peace, blessing, rest. All of it is now a place. All of it's going to now come through David and his line. And I have made and I will make you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Here's that, that's that first promise. Then the second promise. Not only will he give him a great name, he will appoint a place. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. He is going to give his people a place. A place. Through the kingly line of David, God will give his people a place. And you'll notice, he says, nor shall the sons of wickedness, or you might say, violent men, they're going to oppress them no more as they have previously since the time that I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. This terminology of planting here is the same terminology we find in Genesis chapter 2. He's going to appoint them, plant them in a place. In the same way that God plants a garden of Eden back in Genesis chapter 2, and God's people, since the rebellion, since Adam and Eve have fallen away, they have been looking for a place. God is promising through, a, through David's line, they will have a place. They will be restored back into fellowship for him. And not only that, it's God promises there to give them rest. And I will have caused you, I will cause you to rest from all of your enemies. This is the blessing. And then he goes on in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. 
And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. David wanted to build God a house. And God says to him, no, no, no. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And now he's not talking about a house for David to live in. He's talking about what? A dynasty. I'm going to build you a line, a house. There will be now a Davidic household. There will be sons that come from your line. Just as God had promised Abraham that he would have offspring, so the Lord now channels that through and to David. In this, we will see this last promise, there are Let me just draw several observations from it. First of all, you see this. This promise is personal. This promise of a house is personal. You notice that with, in verse verse 12, I will set up your seed, that's offspring, after you, that's singular, and he, he will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Here, even as he is speaking of his offspring in general and the fulfillment of this is going to be in the line of David, yet there is still looking forward to one in particular, one offspring in particular who will come. And who will fulfill these things. One offspring who will build the house for the Lord. Not a temple made with hands, but a people. It is a personal promise. It is a relational promise. Verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Here we begin to see, not only is this one who is going to come, who is going to bring blessing and peace and rest, this one is going to be from, is going to be not only David's son in the line of David, he is going to be God's own son. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In one sense, God is promising to stand in a unique relationship with this one person. You know, sonship in the Old Testament isn't always talked about in biological terms. That is, this is going to be a biological son. It's sometimes talked about in relational terms. Just as you are reigning King David, your son will do as you do, and he is going to reign as well. It is more than this. It is picturing one who might rightly be called not only the son of God, but the son of David. It is a relational promise. It is a gracious promise. Notice there in verse 14, this son, now he is widening the scope to think of all, of who will, all those who will reign in David's line. If he commits iniquity, and 
That's not really conditional. It's more like, since he will, when this happens, the Lord promises, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. David served as commander under Saul. He he saw what King Saul did. He saw King Saul's failure, his rebellion and disobedience against God, and he saw God's reaction to it, God's response, which was judgment, and he removes King Saul from the throne. David himself was best friends with King Saul's son, Jonathan. And he saw all that happened. How that failure on King Saul's part brought about the end of King Saul's line. And there's got to be this question, if I fail or if my son fails, will we too be removed? Is this just a temporary thing that's going to happen, but then once we fall away, we're done with, we're destroyed, we're ended? And the Lord tells him, no. No, my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Think of how this would have blown him away. That God will not only give him this promise, but that this promise isn't conditional on their obedience. His mercy isn't conditional on the deserving nature of his son or of David himself. This promise is not only relational, it is gracious. More than that, it is eternal. The promise comes in verse 12, I will establish his kingdom. And then in the end of verse 13, I will establish his, the throne of his kingdom forever. And then verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. And just in case we missed it, your throne shall be established forever. He is piling this on again and again so we do not miss it. This reign of King David, this reign of his line, will not end. It will be forever. There are only two ways that this could have been fulfilled. Either that there will be an endless succession of kings in David's line, which was part of the overconfidence of the people of Israel. We're good. We can't be defeated. We can't be conquered. There will always be a king in David's line because God promised that. And when the people of Israel were taken away into captivity, this was part of what was prophesied, that there is coming a king again. But it's either there's going to be an endless succession of kings in David's line, or there's going to be one king who will reign forever. And it is in this vein that the prophets begin to unpack this idea. Listen to Jeremiah 33, verses 15 to 16. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch. So you think of that word branch there to signify a ruler, a righteous branch to spring up for David. 
and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And again, earlier, 10 chapters earlier, in Jeremiah 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And again, Isaiah 16, 5, Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, that is, in the line of David, in the house of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Or take these familiar words from Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Two chapters earlier, Isaiah 7, 14, we are told that this one who is going to be born will come from the virgin, from the womb of a virgin. Micah 5, 2 tells us that this king is going to be born in Bethlehem. Hosea 11, 1 describes this king as that, as he who will come out of Egypt. Zechariah 9 describes the entrance of the king into Jerusalem in a humble manner. Zechariah 11 tells us that this king will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And Zechariah 13 tells us that his disciples will be scattered. Isaiah 53 tells us that this king will not only be despised by men, he will be crushed by God. Not for his own sin, but for the sins of others. Again and again and again, this This promise of a king coming in the line of David is echoed throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And it is fulfilled in the coming of Christ, who was born in the line of David and yet is the unique Son of God. Friends, at Christmas we celebrate the king who has come. And we remember that the king is going to return. He is going to return. Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Murdered on the cross by hateful men, bearing the wrath of God for sinners, and raised on the third day. And he himself declared after his resurrection that all authority in heaven on earth belongs to him. Once he came to make peace by his blood, the next coming he will make peace through justice and righteousness. Remember this king. Remember how he came to us. You know, today, men and women who want to be taken seriously as political candidates, they do everything to spruce up their image. 
They do everything they can to make themselves look good. Anything that can hurt them, they suppress, they whitewash. The aim is to do anything possible to make them as appealing as possible. To make the candidate seem as good and pure as possible. Of course, this isn't anything new. You know, that very word, candidate, comes to us from ancient Rome, comes from the Latin word, candidus. There it is described, used to describe the togas that ancient politicians wore as they sought to, as they would make speeches seeking political um, office of some kind. They would take these togas and they would bleach them white. And candidus means to make white or to bleach or to whiten. And so they were described as candidates, those who were whitening their apparel to make themselves more appealing, to make themselves appear as good and as righteous as possible. The reality is we may not be running for office, but we do the very same thing. But remember how Jesus the King came. Remember the manger. He is not laid in a crib or a handcrafted bassinet. The king was laid where animals, animals fed. Our king, our God, our savior doesn't meet us in the sanitized spaces of bleach whitened power. He meets us in the real manure scented reality of the grime and grit of our lives. He doesn't call us to climb our way to heaven. He comes to us. He lifts us onto his shoulders. And he carries us through the muck and the mire that we have made with our lives. He embraces us in our sin. He embraces us in our brokenness. He gives us his own robes of righteousness. And he reminds us it is finished. It is paid for. So this week, as you take down the Christmas decorations, don't pack away the meaning of what, of who our Savior is. Let the joy of our King who has come stay lit within us because the King who has come Brothers and sisters, he is coming again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have made such good promises. More than that, you have not only made good promises, you have kept them all. And having kept those promises, it it reminds us, it encourages us, it calls us to live in light of the promises that you have made that are still yet to come to fruition. Father, thank you for sending your own son into this world for sinners like us, that we may dwell secure in your presence for all eternity, that we may cry out with your people, the Lord is our righteousness Christ is our righteousness. It is in his name we pray. Amen.